to the Wellness as a Service podcast, a podcast tracking the future of data-driven disease prevention, life extension, and wellness optimization consumer products and services. And now over to your host, Leah Stryber. Hi, it's been quite a hiatus since the last guest, Ben Wang, back in February. I kicked off this podcast late summer 2018 because more and more people were asking for a follow-up conference to the event I produced back in fall 2016, but I absolutely didn't have the time. Incidentally, because I was busy 12 hours a day, seven days a week, consulting as a result of that event. My hope, though, was an interim, this podcast would at least keep some conversation and momentum going that had started back then. But then, just after eight great guests, two things occurred in parallel. It became obvious that there is a growing need for a boutique consultancy advisory and market intelligence agency in this area. It was a bit like when back in 2008 I'd identified Android pre-launch and iOS pre-SDK and held an event championing them and then saw immediately as a consequence of that event the need to provide advisory and market intelligence around mobile apps and what was later to be known as the mobile app stores. Things like number of downloads, developers on each platform, developer tools, store ranking methods, etc. The second was I had a growing sense that something was slightly off, but I didn't know what. However, during the time out, I realized what it was. Anti-aging stroke life extension is moving exponentially, and as such, I should not keep it as a subcategory under the banner of optimization as I'd been doing. It needed instead pulling to the forefront. Also, because I'd only ever worked B2B, having worked with many hundreds of founders, I was treating the content of this podcast as only for discussion amongst business leaders. I don't think that was right when much of the content is of interest and of great value to the public at large. The outcome is the website hyperwellbeing.com which was an event website then late last year became a podcast site, is, as of a week ago, now a consulting site for Hyper Wellbeing Innovation Labs Incorporated. And what you're listening to now has been renamed the Wellness as a Service podcast. And what was a Hyper Wellbeing blog has been redesigned as of a week ago. In a couple of days, I'll also have a personal blog site at driver.com that is my surname.com, to be clear. My plan is to push myself to write in either of these two blogs and later on publish a book taking into account feedback on articles. I'd love to say much more, but I've got Travis Christofferson online ready for a chat, and he has a great book out tomorrow. Curable. How an unlikely group of radical innovators is trying to transform our healthcare system. Travis is also the author of Tripping Over the Truth. He received his undergraduate degree in molecular biology from the Honors College at Matana State University and a master's degree in material engineering and science from the South Dakota School of Mines and Technology. Today he is a full-time science writer, the founder of a cancer charity dedicated to affordable cancer therapies and the co-founder of Care Oncology USA. He lives in South Dakota. A great welcome, Travis, as a first guest on phase two of what is now the Wellness as a Service podcast. Hi, Lee. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. If we jump in straight away with the introduction of your book, you mentioned Michael Lewis's Moneyball book. 
It's a book about baseball, and you make a number of references to it throughout your book. Could you uh, introduce Moneyball and say why it was so significant for you? Yeah, yeah, Moneyball. So, if, for your listeners, if they haven't heard of it, it's was a, it was a book by Michael Lewis. Um, I believe it came out in two thousand one, and then subsequently was made into a movie with Brad Pitt. And the storyline is about the Oakland A's and their data-driven approach to picking players. And it, you know, for me, it was just a wonderful story because baseball has been around for over a hundred years. You know, it's got this rich history. It's a relatively simple game, and you would think that the mechanics of it or the process would be improved to as good as it could be. So the story of Moneyball is, is this small market team. The Oakland A's had, I think at that time, the second lowest budget in the, in the, in the Major League Baseball. It was three times less than that of the New York Yankees. And so they were just trying to survive, you know, how, how, what to compete with these guys with so much more money. And the idea was they, they basically fired their talent scouts and switched to a completely analytical driven approach to picking players. And Michael Lewis told a kind of a funny story when he was researching the book, he, he stumbled in the, the Oakland A's locker room and he just happened to stumble in right when the Oakland A's were taking a shower. And he said, you know, he saw all these Oakland A's naked and, and the sight was disturbing in the fact that they just did not look like professional athletes. Some of them were overweight, you know, kind of misshapen. But this was why the talent scouts were getting this wrong. They were not, they were judging these guys on superficial measures rather than the measures that really mattered. And the data showed that these guys were good players. So the year they assembled this team based just based on analytics, they did fantastic. They broke a record with 20 straight wins in a row. They could, they won the, um, their division. Uh, so their approach has been proven out. Ironically, tonight is a game between the Oakland A's and the Tampa Rays. And the Tampa Rays have the lowest budget right now in Major League Baseball. And I think Oakland is 25th out of 30 now. So these two very low budget teams are competing in the wild card spot this evening. They both have had wonderful, wonderful seasons, but both of them, including Tampa Bay, have switched to a um, or have adopted an analytical approach. And what I thought was just so unique for the book, you know, you're always trying to have these narrative arcs. And this was a relatively easy sort of example to give about how data can overcome our, our biases as human beings. And I try to then go on to show that healthcare is really dominated by these biases and we need to switch more of, to this analytical model like, like the Oakland A's had done in Moneyball. That was a very nice coverage of Moneyball. I, I like your style of writing. Your previous book, in fact, Tripping Over the Truth, How the Metabolic Theory of Cancer is Overturning One of Medicine's Most Entrenched Paradigms, was one of my favorite books. And I, I thought it was brilliant, actually. Where did uh, the, the inspiration come for your new book, which is Curable, the story of how an unlikely group of radical innovators is trying to transform our healthcare system, which is launching tomorrow. That will be the 3rd of October uh, on Kindle. Where did uh, the inspiration come from? Yeah, it was, it was very similar to the inspiration for the first book. Um, just kind of these epiphany moments that I was lucky to have. With, with Curable, I had, because of tripping over the truth, I had been given opportunities. And one of the interesting ones was to give a talk at a small charity event in the UK 
And at this event, I met a medical doctor that was part of this new startup called Care Oncology. And what they do is they specialize in repurposed medications. So these are medications that have had FDA approval for a long time. And the idea is to use them for new or different disease indications that the data shows they may have efficacy in. And I was so taken aback by this model um, that I struck up a deal with them and, and agreed to help bring it to the United States. So we opened up a clinic about a year later, a good friend of mine in, in my hometown, Rapid City, South Dakota, which is a very small sort of conservative community. And I was given the opportunity to present what Care Oncology did, our treatment to the oncologist at the local cancer center. And I'd hoped they'd receive it, you know, well. And it was a 20-minute presentation in front of all the oncologists, the nurses, the pharmacists, um, and the head, the medical director of the cancer center. And I just went through the data, explained what we were doing, why, why this model I felt was so good. And, you know, for numerous reasons, repurposed drugs have many advantages, one being safety because they've been around so long, you know, interactions, you know, side effects. And the other is you get these big blocks of data that you can look at when drugs have been in the clinic for, for long periods of time. And so I presented this data and this rationale, and I had one of the oncologists immediately just start flinging accusations. And towards the end of this, one of the drugs we use is a, as a type 2 diabetes drug called metformin. And the data is very clear that it shows it can help improve outcomes almost in every type of cancer. Um, and it's a very cheap drug and it's extraordinarily safe. So the risk reward is very easier to measure. And uh, he mentioned towards the end of the talk, why would you use a type two diabetes drug in cancer? And then one of the oncologists sitting off in the corner said, well, I use it to help prevent recurrence. And just in that moment, it struck me how far off track medicine has really gotten. If you can have two oncologists in the same room, one befuddled while you're using this drug and the other embracing it wholeheartedly, you know, how, how does this situation come to be? And that was really the inspiration to really examine healthcare and how these huge disparities and variations can exist. And that was the inspiration for Curable. Hey, thank you very much. It's, have you been preparing for these questions? It's, uh, you're rather concise. <laughs> well, yeah, when we write the book, it's easy to, uh, you know, just resuscitate what's already there. <laughs> Yeah, but there's a lot more in the book, and you you danced around it quite nicely. Um, as you know, I've been I I see a a secondary healthcare emerging one. I've been dubbing wellness as a service in lieu of a better moniker. And being predictive and preventative, it's about risk and probability, particularly individualized. But from what I've witnessed for a number of years now, doctors, generally speaking, don't know about statistics, not even absolute versus relative risk, even when dispensing of drugs like statins. So let me just skim read something in front of me today from the British Medical Journal. These criticisms may be fair, but they don't disguise a broader point that clinicians, whether working in primary care or hospital practice, have a poor understanding of concepts of risk and probability and the increasing exposure to statistics in undergraduate and postgraduate education hasn't made much of a difference. Let me jump ahead. When doctors offer a prescriptive drug or a screening test to large numbers of asymptomatic people, they're doing something quite different from treating a patient who has sought help because she is sick. They're not so much doctors as life insurance salespeople 
peddling deferred benefits in exchange for a small, ongoing inconvenience and cost. In this new kind of medicine, not understanding the risk is equivalent of not knowing about the circulation of blood. Do you have any comment there? Can you? Yeah, I think that what you're stating there and what you, you know, the concept is really what's plagued medicine since for the last hundred years, at least. And that is this struggle between human intuition and, and the power of data. And I tried to show that through the, um, in the book, through the development of this procedure called the radical mastectomy for breast cancer and the struggle, you know, this ongoing struggle between clinical trial data and, and a physician's intuition. There's a quote by Hippocrates back, uh, way back, that was the value of a physician's intuition is greater than any measurement. And that sort of guiding doctrine from Hippocrates himself is really what's what's characterized medicine for most of the you know the nineteenth twentieth century. And and when when he made that statement, of course, medicine you know was in the dark ages. We we had procedures like purging and leaching and things like that. And medicine was really a mystical type of practice. It took a long time for the data to really. In fact, the first randomized controlled trial, the gold standard for measuring a therapy's effectiveness was done in the 40s. It took a long time for medicine to catch up to the rest of the sciences, and it's still trying to catch up. What we've done is we've built this culture of medicine where we value a doctor's intuition over everything else. And what's happened is the complexity of medicine has just outstripped any single human mind ability to do it effectively. And so I, I completely agree with what that statement, you know, the concept behind that statement is doctors have this sort of statistical blind spot. And the way we need to fix that is we need to have, we need to have a framework or a system that doctors operate within that guides them in these critical evaluations of risk, reward, absolute risk versus relative risk and so forth. And there's examples of that happening that I tried to give in the book, but I think, you know, as a general strategy that's where we need to go and i guess you're looking for what i'll call absolute truth in terms of number crunching but don't you think there's great incentive pressure that will co-opt uh the the results of such systems oh of course yeah and th- that will be the you know i guess the battlefront of this healthcare reform is th- that's always the the struggle is the money part and but if there's anything we've, we've really underestimated, I think, for the 20th century, it's human incentives and how powerful, extraordinarily powerful they are. And that is one of the biggest you know, problems dogging healthcare right now is we have this crazy fee-for-service system where we pay doctors for every procedure and you know, um, operation, every prescription and so forth. Um, and, and this incentivizes them, of course, to overtreat. And that's one of the biggest problems in healthcare is we have about 30% of all healthcare dispensed is overtreatment. So we need to re-incentivize our doctors. And there's, you know, there's pockets of, of this of healthcare systems that are doing this the right way. They put doctors on salary. And then the data is very clear. It shows doctors that are on salary immediately change the way they practice medicine. Now they focus on what the patient needs. And so, for example, the market, you know, tends to solve these problems quicker than, than any institution. For example, Walmart has noticed this. And if they have, if they self-insure, if they have a, a, a employee that's got back pain, they will fly them to the Mayo Clinic 
and have them go there instead because at the Mayo Clinic where doctors are in salary, if they don't need an operation, they won't get one. So yeah, I think incentives are, are a huge part of this. It reminds me, Brad Perkins, who was a former chief medical officer at Human Longevity Incorporated, he stated, let me uh, find your quote from the first hyper well-being event. Medicine has traditionally been a clinical science that's been supported by data. We're rapidly approaching a time when medicine is about to become a data science supported by clinicians. And then he, I invited him as the first guest onto this podcast, and then he, he stated, and let me quote him again, medicine today is qualitative clinical practice. And you know, there's the only word I'm comfortable with among these three is the clinical part. I'm very uncomfortable with qualitative being applied to these kinds of high-risk decisions that physicians are making on behalf of individuals. And certainly, practice is a suspicious term as well. Any thoughts or comments there? Yeah. What that reminds me of is something in the book, qualitative versus you know absolute data and how deceptive the human mind can be. And the example that just popped into my mind was in the 1980s, there was two treatments for lung cancer. There was surgery and radiation. And surgery offered a better, a better outcome. However, it came with a 10% risk of death. Um, over the radiation. But if the if the oncologist presented these two options to a patient, if the oncologist presented the option and said, surgery has a better chance of extending your life, however, it comes with a 10% risk of death, only 50% of the patients opted for surgery. However, if the oncologist presented it and said, surgery will has a better chance of extending your life, and there's a 90% chance you'll survive, then about 85% of the patients chose surgery. So you, yeah, the qualitative part of medicine you can see is very pronounced. It, it's just these these decisions, these life death decisions that should be based on pure rationale, data, objective data, are often influenced just by our own cognitive bias and how a, a doctor frames things. You remind me there of the book Nudge by Richard Thaler. Are you aware of that book? Uh-uh. no, I'm not. Okay, it's uh, it's called Nudge improving decisions about health, wealth, and happiness. You, you mentioned that societal systems are being improved with better decision-making, with um, correction for the failings of the human mind, which is actually what Thaler's book is about. However, uh, healthcare is not. Uh, in, in this way, your book is saying details the direction of what should happen yeah, I think ironically that healthcare is increasingly divergent from our individual health. It's increasingly not aligned with our health. It's an absurd situation where our most valuable asset is not adequately protected by the institution formalized to do so. And anybody who's unsure should read uh, Elizabeth uh, Rosenthal's An American Sickness. Do you really think it can be fixed? Yeah, I do. I'm optimistic about, about that, Lee. And, and the reason is, is because you, you talked about, you gave an ex- there is a lot of society, arenas of human activity that are being improved by the systems approach that are becoming remarkably efficient. And of course, medicine is lagged, but because of our system, because we're not uniform, you see these pockets of brilliant. And it's always been the doctrine. In fact, it's it's kind of written in the law that a hospital or a clinic 
has got to remain this kind of inert framework for that allows doctors to practice medicine within. So they're designed to be invisible, a hospital and so forth. And this, you know, you can't even, corporations can't impinge on this. It's called the corporate practice of medicine. We have to stay completely clear of doctor decision-making. And there was good reasons for this initially when a doctor had a good grasp of all, you know, the treatments that were available. But now because of this complexity, it becomes so much more um, imperative to have the system be a dynamic partner with the doctor to guide them, to, to pull data from the electronic medical records and show them the best practices. And there's a brilliant example of this, of a healthcare chain called Intermountain Healthcare in Utah. And the, the, the guy driving this, his name is Brett James. He's a statistician. He's also an MD and a surgeon. And what James has done is he's made the, the system part of the practice. So he will look at the, the electronic medical records and notice where there's variation in treatment. For example, he noticed that it's always been known that antibiotics given near the time of surgery help prevent uh, surgical infections. However, it's never known the optimal time. So he looked at the medical records and he saw that his surgeons in, indeed were giving antibiotics you know, at different times, way before surgery, 24 hours before surgery, sometimes immediately before, sometimes 24 or 48 hours after so what he did is he just had them continue that in, in groups, and then he just measured the outcomes in his medical record system and found out that if you give antibiotics two hours right before the first incision, you had much greater outcomes. So this cut the rate of surgical infections in half. And you just go on and on down the list of the process improvements that they've done at Intermountain. And it's, you know, it's incredibly dramatic. These equate to thousands of lives saved. And billions of dollars saved. And when you look at Intermountain's system, if you applied that to the rest of the United States, the way they've done it, it would immediately drop, result in about a 40% reduction in healthcare costs. So this would essentially solve our crisis if we just adopted this system and did it the right way. I've not looked at Intermountain. I immediately wonder how they make money from doing what you just described. You know, it's it's that's a great question, and they do take hits because they do do it the right way. So they're not incentivized by overtreatment and so forth. They put their doctors on salary, for example. However, because they're so efficient, they save money in other ways. And Brett James often brings this up. You know, if you do this the right way, you 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 maintain margins enough that you can that you can continue to operate. I haven't shared with you yet because we've not spoken before. I believe that given enough time that what we call healthcare today will be ring-fenced to acute care, i.e. something major went wrong, or an injury. And with the speed of machines going forward, you know, the semiconductor industry generally, um, the democracy of the data processing industry, i.e. chips and associated networking and sensors end up in the hands of consumers, that prediction, prevention, and optimization including lifespan extension, will fall under a secondary system that I now see emerging, what I mentioned I've been calling wellness as a service. Any thoughts? I've always noticed in healthcare is sort of this absurd bifurcation of how we approach treating disease. And what I mean by that is we divide up all these disease processes and try to, try to fix them once they've manifested. It's very obvious that if you try to get to the source and use a preventative type of medicine, you could make much, much more progress. Now, that, that's easy to say. 
and we I'll just give you an example of how that doesn't work sometimes. We always thought that if you could diagnose cancer earlier, you could fix it. You'd have this chance to to do better, to fix it before, to cure it before it manifested as a you know a malignant disease. Um, and we've gotten better at it. For example, for thyroid cancer, we've tripled the number of early detections. However, the death rates haven't budged. And so when you clearly look at the data, what's happened is it's gotten very good at finding masses, finding sort of markers that are indicative of precancerous things. However, most of these tumors turn out to be not a threat. They turn out to be very benign. And so what happens then is these patients will be aware that they have a mass or something, a high PSA, and they'll demand treatment or the doctor will, will offer treatment. So you get a tremendous amount of unnecessary cancer treatment on, on early detection. So you get this massive block of overtreatment without a cons- consummate increase in uh, outcome and death rates. So that's an example of how you, if you do preventative medicine, you have to do it the right way. You have to be, you have to have a, some sort of therapy that's proportional to you know, an early detection type scenario rather than chemo or radiation and so forth. However, you know, that, that's not, that's one example, but I think for, if, if you were able to cure cancer tomorrow or cardiovascular disease, it would equate to something like two to three years increase in lifespan. That's, you know, that's not as much as most people think. So the, the problem there is what happens is an aging body is you just get a buildup of problems and they, the next problem is waiting in line. So I think you're absolutely right. We need to focus on wellness, on preventative medicine, on drugs that actually, things like, you know, dietary lifestyle things. Metformin is an extraordinarily interesting drug to apply in a preventative mindset for cardiovascular cancer and just the aging process in general. So I think, yeah, that that is where medicine needs to go just because the 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 bang for your buck, I guess, is so much, so much better than trying to treat, continuously trying to treat problems after they manifest. Yeah, I'm quite keen to jump to metformin. I had a decision to make a couple months ago to start taking metformin or berberine. And I decided, hey, I'm going to play with berberine first since everybody's jumping on metformin. I'm just playing as usual. I test all kinds of molecular agents on myself and do blood draws frequently anyway yeah i i take i take metformin as well and and yeah i'm 47 i just turned 48 actually and yeah it made when you look at the data it makes a ton of sense the data that, that really struck me was they looked at i believe it was seventy thousand patients with type 2 diabetes compared to healthy match controls i think the control group was over ninety thousand. And the diabetic population on metformin lived longer than the healthy population. So that's pretty, pretty compelling data that this, you know, is a, is a real anti-aging therapy. Yeah, I recently read David Sinclair's Lifespan book. But when I looked up yeah, the studies, the mice were always obese or sick or elderly or on a standard American diet. I couldn't help but wonder, not only is it mice, but what if it was individuals who were eating a ketogenic diet, say an ancestral diet, and they're doing five-day water fasts occasionally, et cetera? That's a great question. And that since then, metformin has been shown to improve lifespan of healthy mice. Um, resveratrol is one that's really, you know, I think it only applied in, in obese and aged mice. Yeah, I also start taking resveratrol this year, but now I'm going to switch to um, a fancier micro version 
Um, but I, I looked at berberine, as I mentioned, and it seemed to have less side effects and more positives uh, in the it uh, had a, allegedly a larger impact on on lipids. I'm still doing testing. I've got 40 days left, and then I'll switch over to um, a gram of metformin per day. Anyway, jumping back to what you were saying is the so what you're effectively were saying is, as far as I understand, and put another way, is that all men when they die have prostate cancer. Yeah, I think that's correct. I'm, I'm not sure it's a hundred percent of of men, but I think it's the vast majority, including you know micro tumors throughout our bodies. We we are we are actively as we age, you know, th- having this never ending battle between between tumor genesis and and our immune systems and so forth. And I guess that you know what what's really important is the ability to recognize when it becomes a threat, and and or how do you treat? So, for example, say you have a high PSA, and, and the data on this is really kind of phenomenal. It's actually Patients that are diagnosed with prostate cancer from a high PSA have a 47 times greater chance of being treated, so chemo, radiation, biopsies, and so forth, by invasive treatments than they are to have their life extended. So what's that, what that means is you have to over-treat a, a lot of people before you treat the ones where it actually makes a difference. And so we need to get good. We need to just get better at, at determining when what to do in those scenarios. And I think this is where metformin, um, ketogenic diets, sort of fasting, these, these therapies that are so low risk and, and, you know, probably have a benefit of changing your health in other ways, extending your life as well, become, that seems like a much more proportional response to these early detections than the traditional way of biopsies and chemo and so forth. So it's one thing I liked about your book which although it's out tomorrow the the uh, audible one is already out so i i had a listen so i like the fact that as you know i'm pushing the prediction prevention angle and as you point out there more treatment and early detection isn't always better you need to be very careful and there's also the issue of the worried well and in other words, you start creating a lot more traffic of people performing imaging and biopsies and so on who <laughs> would have been better just having not been aware and left it. But I guess what you're a, I'm, I'm laughing, by the way, in part, not just because of that, but because I haven't even got to discussing later parts of your book. We're, we're, I'm still in the first part here. I feel we could chat all day. So I guess what you're saying is you want to see quantified treatment optimal treatment, i.e. surgery or not, and if surgery, to have access to evidence-based systems for those decisions. But what about optimization, uh, like anti-aging outcomes, as we discussed? Surely uh, prediction prevention is a data processing task. It's not like a typical doctor, white coat, drug dispensary, knocking the knee with a hammer type task. Yeah, that's, that's correct. Going back to these sort of, you know, these these guiding data, what you do in certain situations and why this is so difficult for doctors these days is because there are so many procedures now. And what happens is you establish as a procedure is effective, but then the science sort of stops and you don't get the next level of data about comparing a procedure to a, a different procedure or when to apply it and the best time to apply it. 
And the example I used in the book for that was prostate cancer. With early detection, you have five treatment options. You have watch and wait, you have surgery, and then you have three forms of radiation, sort of standard radiation, and then at the high end of this new proton beam radiation. And the proton beam radiation cost $100,000, and the watch and wait cost a few thousand dollars. None of these treatments have been compared to each other. Doctors don't know which one is best in that scenario. But under a fee-for-service payment system, you can guess which one's getting prescribed the most, the, the you know $100,000 treatment. And you can see this in, in many, many things in medicine. I use the example of the radical mastectomy, which went on for 50 years and brutalized women and was based on a seductive sort of seductive proof or seductive idea that cancer was spreading in this slow centrifugal manner. And the further out you cut, the, the better chance a woman had a survival. But then when they finally did the clinical trial and compared it to a simple mastectomy, it was shown to be no better. And there is many things like that today. Last year, um, they just showed for the first time that women with hormone positive, uh, HER2 negative breast cancer, it's a more com- common form, I believe, um, that adjunctive chemotherapy a- after surgery is of no benefit. So now thousands of women can be spared chemotherapy with all of its caustic side effects um, just because they finally did this big NIH study to show that it, it had no effect. So yeah, you know, optimizing and figure out, figuring out when and how to apply these treatments and when are the best, you know, which ones are the best is still a fluid kind of ongoing process. And we could do so much better if we just captured all that data like they do at Intermountain all the time. I like the fact you have a solid uh, reference example in Intermountain. And at the, also at the start of the book, you, you remind me that you mention uh, what Amazon, JP Chase, and Berkshire um, have done in creating their own, shall we call it, healthcare company. And I quote, the parasite of healthcare dragging their companies down relative to the rest of the world. Could you introduce just briefly what Amazon, JP Chase, and Berkshire are doing and just briefly why? Very clear what they're doing. You know, the data is is right there for anyone to look at. American healthcare, most industrialized nations leveled off at about 11% per GDP. We, we just kept going and we're now we're, I think, 18 and still rapidly rising. So this is a, a massive chunk of our, of our GDP that we're siphoning off for healthcare compared to the rest of the world, which by the way, have better outcomes, better lifespan, better infant mortality less anxiety because every, you know, most people are insured. We leave so many, such a substantial proportion of our uh, population uninsured. So they're just doing it better. And this cost, it costs our, our businesses. And that, that trio, what they noticed is it, you know, that operate on a global scale, it just makes America less competitive. We have to pay out so much more money per employee in healthcare compared to the rest of the world. It's, we become less and less competitive and it's harder to do business. So what they decided to do, you know, briefly is just create their own healthcare system from the inside and see if they could do it better, capitalize on all these system improvements that we're talking about, use the examples that are, are working like Intermountain and see if they can build this framework from within and, and have it operate more efficiently. So I use that as kind of a narrative throughout the book to, to, to watch and to this sort of you know ongoing story, because the the one of the companies involved, Berkshire Hathaway, those guys 
have been moneyballing financial markets, you know, since the since for most of the 20th century. So that that was why I kind of use that as a narrative arc throughout the book. I appreciate it. If I jump to chapter two, I'll try and speed myself up here. Chapter two, which is called How Healthcare Became a Culture of Inefficiency. My favorite quote from that chapter was Medicine has been built on the autonomy of the physician's venerated intuition, but something more is required. Still today, medicine is more closely resembles a culture than it does a logically structured evidence based system. A culture inextricably shackled to the fallibility of the human mind with its myriad of biases. So what you're saying is healthcare needs to become data-driven, predictive analytics, multivariate causation analysis via AI, or this is your point. Exactly. Yeah. And I think, you know, those are all the things we've talked about, about how Intermountain and places like Geislinger, Kaiser, they're these examples of what we what you just that quote references about how to how to diminish the fallibility of the human mind how to where the system can effectively you know sort of put a noose around where doctors are making a mistake um, then we that's how we improve and this does not mean we need to diminish a doctor's intuition this just means that we wrap data around you know give them these data guidelines to where they can, then they can focus more on the human part of, the, of medicine and use their intuition in other ways. Well, you state that the uncomfortable truth is that there are many procedures with only a thin evidence to support them, and that they persist because of tradition rather than evidence-based knowledge. But don't they persist because there is money and patients are in a vulnerable, powerless position in a time of need? I mean, surely it's simply an expression, uh, the apex of capitalism, I mean, the protocols of capitalism have been running for a couple hundred years. I mean, it's not because of myriad of biases of the mind. It's, it's underlying protocols that have been magnified by a global system and will continue to uh, grow exponentially. Yeah, that's very true. I, th- I think it's really both. I think it's biases and it's these you know capitalistic incentives. And that, the example I used in the book was uh, McAllen, Texas, where the, uh, people noticed that they were utilizing Medicare about twice the rate as, as the rest of the country. So they were paying out about $15,000 per Medicare recipient compared to the rest of the U.S., which is about $7,000. And so uh, an author, journalist, Atul Gwandi, he went down there. He wrote actually wrote a New Yorker piece about this. He wrote down there to find out why. And when he found out, when he dug deep into this, it was simply a culture of entrepreneurship that the doctors had developed. So in other words, these doctors were buying strip malls, real estate, they were competing with each other, you know, and that just escalated into this, you know, horrible system of fraud, over treatment and, uh, you know, kickbacks, all these things were going on. And when, after he wrote this article in the New Yorker, the, the, the regulators came down on, on this place hard and it really had changed. And you can see the utilization rates have dropped substantially. So just find, you know, Charlie Munger said that one of the worst things you can do in a, that it can happen to a capitalistic society is fraud, allow fraud to continue to propagate. So if you can find these and shine a light on them, you know, you can affect change. If the economy is not to support health, wellness, and well-being, then what is an economy for? And I keep persisting with that question, and nobody seems to give me an answer. And it appears to me that 
the economy maybe up until, I don't know, 40, 50 years ago did track somewhat well with well-being. You know, we had enough calories, furniture and so on. But once we had enough calories and items and material goods, it's often more and more perpetuating, creating problems for it to solve. For example, obesity. Yeah, that's an interesting way to look at it. And and I think you're right. You know, once these basic problems have solved, we're in a unique position to really examine what 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 we're doing, what everything else means, and how we improve, and what what accounts for a good life. And and that is inexorably shackled to health. And you know, I think that gets undervalued in our society. You, we just accept aging and a decaying body and all these things as, as inevitable. But, you know, in truth, that is what makes a life worth living is the maintenance of health and preventing all these things. So I think, you know, Lee, I'm optimistic. I see, as I was writing this book too, what you see is these changes that are being affected. You see the old healthcare system is kind of this legacy system. It's like Ma Bell, you know, corded phones that eventually just dies off and gets replaced by the next best technology. And you see that in healthcare. You see these bubbling sort of percolating pockets of innovation, these small boutique health systems that are doing things so much better. Um, Verda Health is an example. They just do a strict dietary regimen for type 2 diabetes online. It's a ketogenic diet. It's online coaching. And it's a value-based payment system. So if they don't achieve outcomes for insured patients, they don't get paid. Um, so I do see the economy, the market system really evolving to solve a lot of these problems. It's slower than we'd like, but it's definitely happening. To indicate the the vastness of the problem, Victor Chappelle, oh, I'll link to him in the show notes, he, he said the, the fast food industry, for each dollar it makes, ends up costing $3 in healthcare to fix what it did. And the great majority of Americans and British are eating out. I mean, most calories are food that has been eaten out. So you've got this model where they're making a dollar only for it then to cost a dollar to try to fix what's happened in, in the healthcare system. I have hope in cryptocurrency. And I wish I could get a little bit more time uh, in that space. I was looking at helping a company with an ICO and that's where my optimism uh, came from. I think money is is um, it's also due. A, oh, it's undergoing a revolution, and I think that'll conspire with this need for uh, health, wellness, and well-being. So, yeah, the the crypto space. Anyway, you mentioned the procedures get institutionalized. So, for example, stents are overused, like one in 10 stents are not needed. So overutilization of procedures, that's, that's a horrific figure, one in 10. Yeah, I mean, the, over, the overutilization is truly horrific in general. Um, one in 10 stents, uh, you know, cancer care treatments, again, tons of overtreatment. There was an interesting story that I dug up and in, in, it occurred in Redding, California, where it was for bypass surgery and any patients that were admitted to this, this uh, Institute in Reading, if they had the slightest perceived abnormality in their cardiac vessels, they were shuffled off to, to bypass surgery. And 
you know, it, what happened was this culture developed where this sort of colleague, colleague reinforcement, they were operating on more and more healthy people. So their outcomes looked better. And they just sort of propagated this belief that they were doing the patients a favor. Now, this is an example of over, overutilization, you know, without the money um, being the driving component. And so once the regulators and the media got word of this, you know, they came down on them like a hammer. They were fined, I think, half of $500 million. But when you look deeper, you found out they, they truly didn't believe they were doing anything wrong. They thought this was in the patient's best interest. So you see the all kinds of sort of rationale behind this overtreatment problem. You know, I think Mark Twain's old adage that every, uh, for a guy with a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. I think doctors have a desire to fix. And so there's a general tendency to, to try to prescribe to, you know, antibiotics, statins, surgery. They're trying to fix patients when in fact, you know, it's been known since the times of Voltaire. I think Voltaire's quote was, a physician, the art of practicing medicine is nothing more than amusing the patient while nature cures the disease. And William Holster, who started one of the founding fathers of Johns Hopkins, stated, practicing medicine is teaching the masses not to take medication. So, you know, it's been known for a long time that that medicine is not perfect. And it, it rare, you know, there are great cases where it can solve problems and save lives, but this overtreatment problem is a human bias, and we just need to recognize that and, and institute ways to, to, to not do it. I personally would like to see consumer apps which guide you in terms of knowing what your choices are. So if you have a particular cancer, you know, it takes it instead of what you mentioned is in the physician, the, the surgeon having access to um, predictive analytics, et cetera. I would like to see that all the way to the consumer for treatment options. Thoughts? Yeah, and I think that's where it's going, you know, with wearable devices and systems biology, you know, we're getting so good at, at being able to just pull out data on individuals and see trends over time that I think that medicine is heading that direction. It's just not a consumer market healthcare. You know, you're already uh, in a deeply vulnerable position, uh, an acute position. <laughs> it's not like shopping around the, the mall. No, it's, it's, there's nothing worse. You know, I, I don't know about you, but I hate going to any clinic, sitting in the waiting room. The whole process is just dehumanizing. And um, I just prefer to stay out of the system altogether if you can. <laughs> uh, I, I work on that and it's partly why we're talking. I, it must be 17, 18 years ago that I last went to a doctor and that was for a checkup. And I, oh, wow. over a lot of study, a lot of time, I have, I have learned that or came to the belief that seems to be backed by continuous forms of testing that the best action I think you can take for your health, and we'll discuss this a little later on if it's okay, is the food that you eat. So a cookbook is probably preferent. A home cooking book is preferential to what is virtual. That's been my conclusion and been my uh, foundation of the pyramid. Then supplements, ordinary supplements, you know, zinc, magnesium, and so on. Then if you've got that two bases, perfect. Then add on some uh, anti-aging. But it's not just over treatment you speak about in the book. You speak about the extreme variation. 
So, for example, time in ICU at the end of life, in some parts of the country you might see 80 specialists, in other parts 18. And what's kind of crazy is that people who um, are in areas where there is less care and therefore receive less care, it doesn't seem to be a bad thing. In fact, the population is not worse for it. They, they don't have lower rates of survival. And your explanation is that medical intervention, be it surgery, chemo, scans, drugs, they all carry risk. So when you overtreat, you introduce risk. And alarmingly, you state that physicians are not made aware of their patterns of practice. So they don't even know that they're overtreating or using an outdated procedure. Yeah, yeah. Variation in treatment is not something that's taught in med- medical school, and the scope of the problem is kind of underappreciated. And, and you know, the data is good at just pulling that out. You can see it; uh, it it's just everywhere. So, so within the same clinic, you can have one doctor prescribe twice the number of scans as another doctor. Um, the the rates of back surgery from county to county in Washington vary by, I think, fifteen times. From cities less than 50 miles away, you can have, you know, three times a stent put in in one city compared to the next city. So it's just everywhere. I mean, this is and, shocking. And- I mean, I, I'm, I, I'm almost speechless. Yes, I've heard it from a number of sources, but how that's allowed to continue. We're not talking about minor inconveniences here. We're talking about people's lives, their very well-being, their functioning, their health, their families, their extended families, their wealth, etc. I mean, what is it? Half a million Americans are going bankrupt each year because of healthcare costs. Yeah, one in I think it's one in five Americans have medical debt now. It, the scope of this problem is is really underappreciated. You know, this is a three over three trillion dollar a year industry and the Americans, you know, we are bearing the brunt of this overtreatment and it's, you know, it's rampant. And I don't, that, that's the, you know, that's the front lines of healthcare is how do we bring down these costs? And unfortunately, you know, I think we have to have a crisis before we act. And it was really telling us when I was writing the book, Right in the throes of the um, subprime crisis, so 2009, you know, the stock market was crashing, the finance system was melting down, and Obama was asked, what's the biggest problem in American economics? And he said, it's not even close, it's healthcare. So I think, you know, the people that are on the inside that see these numbers realize the scope of this problem, it's it's bankrupting our country. 30% of dispensed healthcare is not necessary, you say in the book. And that, yeah, that's the number that's thrown around. I've seen higher numbers. I've seen numbers as high as 50% when you add in fraud and all, you know, do full cost accounting and not just over treatment. The number is, I've seen as high as 50%. And you state that globally after cancer and heart disease, the third largest cause of death is prescribed medications. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Um, drug interactions over prescriptions of medications. That's, that's a huge, huge problem. And, you know, because it is such a large industry with with so many people, the numbers are staggering. Medical air, I think we lose 200,000 people a year to medical air. Um, I saw a stat that uh, I can't remember which year. It was fairly recently, but um, 7,000 people died from sloppy physician handwriting alone. 
you know, you, you, when you see the, the number of people that engage the system with all of its inefficiencies, these numbers are, are mind-boggling. And it also is clear at border, I wouldn't say even borders, I have to say, uh, if you've got any moral compass, it is evil when you get to parts of the book when, for example, you state over 50% of patients with advanced cancers receive chemotherapy in their final months, even though the chance of extending life is exceedingly small. And then you want to say study after study shows end of life chemo degrades what little time people have left and does nothing to extend life. I mean, I I, I can't excuse that beyond the label evil. Thoughts? Yeah, and and I I you know that's what the Berkshire Hathaway is. You know, the two leaders of that company are Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, and Charlie Munger used the word evil as well about that over-treatment towards the end of life with chemotherapy. And when I, when I researched that, I, I became a little more sympathetic for the doctor's position simply because patients are, are, don't want to give up and their families don't want to give up. And oftentimes, they're the ones that don't want to give up and want this sort of Hail Mary treatment all the way to the end. Doctors could certainly do a better job of, of you know, relaying their position and perhaps not even doing it or, you know, giving them a rationale not to do it. And, and the data shows that when you really engage patients with end-stage cancer, when you give them palliative care, support, staff, nursing, um, engage doctors, they and, and really confront this idea of, of death, they take less treatment at the end, substantially less, and they live longer. Yeah, that's interesting. They live longer taking less yeah well right when you when you think about a a failing body you know pouring chemotherapy into it at the very end is is probably gonna is not gonna help it's just gonna hasten the process of death um so you just want these people to have the best end of life where they're where they're clear they feel good they can you know talk to their loved ones and and the chemotherapy at the very end is not the right way to one of the major structural problems is that private insurance took over paying for the cost of drugs and drugs as you state in the book exploded after um, world war ii and because the consumers became disintermediated from the price of the drugs i buy insurance in the middle there's nothing to there's the market can't be kept in check so uh, as you state, devices, medication, and other treatments have skyrocketed in, in, in cost. Yeah, that, that's one of the biggest problems, I think, in healthcare. It's just this, this sort of disassociation from the way capital markets traditionally work, where you have consumers that you know, measure the, the cost and effectiveness of a procedure and then rationally make a decision to, you know, if it's worth it or not. When you're put in an extraordinarily vulnerable situation, you know you you have heart disease, you have cancer, any number of conditions, and the doctor's telling you this is the best treatment. You don't price shop, you know. You don't question that. You just you do it, especially when the cost is hidden in an insurance premium. So that's why you see this sort of ratcheting effect of why this escalation has happened in in, the, in our country. And some of these new cancer treatments that are coming out now, CAR T immunotherapies, for example, are costing about half a million dollars, five hundred thousand dollars for a treatment. So this is this is where you get to the point where you have no choice but to allocate healthcare. You're going to have to pick and choose who gets those treatments. So I, you know, th- this again takes you away from 
or takes you to this point of trying to find these undervalued treatments in healthcare. And that's what I tried to look at in, in the second half of sort of the book is how can you, what are, what's sitting right in front of us that we could do right now that's, you know, very cheap or essentially free to change outcomes. And there's a whole lot of things because the, the market is not set up to recognize those things. Yeah, that's chapter three, which is how simple and effective treatments get lost. And so you state that there that usually off-target effects are observed decades later, but then pharma has a little incentive to carry out trials off-patent. You may wish to say what off-target means and why drugs end up off-patent uh, and what generic drugs mean. And then maybe you could give an example with metformin. Yeah. Yeah. So the traditionally what happens is, you know, once a pharmaceutical company recognizes potential in a drug, they usher it through phase one, two, three clinical trials. This cost nowadays, it costs about a billion dollars. And then they'll win formal approval by the FDA or whatever regulatory body for that disease. And then they, be, you know, then the, the pharmaceutical sales network goes off and knocks on the doors of doctor's offices and tells them the virtues of this medication for them to prescribe it. What happens then is over time, these drugs lose their patent protection and they become generic drugs. And by that time, typically we've captured way more data. So you've been able to look at these drugs in action in big chunks of the population over long periods of time, decades and decades. And so often what you find out is you'll see that they're useful for another disease indication. And the pharmacological, you know, rationale behind this is very explainable. Most of these small molecule drugs affect about seven different molecular pathways within the cell, yet they're only indicated for one. So you'll often get this sort of fortuitous side effect, if you will, where they're treating another disease process. And this is what we call off-label, off-label use. So generic drugs get, get used off-label a lot. And the example metformin it's, it's indicated for type 2 diabetes, so that's what it has FDA approval for. But because there's these massive blocks of data, people have noticed that it's really reducing cardiovascular disease risk. It's reducing, it's improving cancer outcomes in a variety of different cancers. But now, all of a sudden, there's no incentive for doctors to prescribe this. In fact, there's a disincentive because off-label comes with sort of career risk. It's not doesn't have formal approval by a regulatory body, so a doctor is going out in a limb by by prescribing off label, even though the the you know the risk is minimal. So this is just another example about how this misguided incentive system leads to these tremendously undervalued, mispriced therapies in our system. Yeah, it reminds me of Joseph Antun, who introduced me to anti aging. He was uh, one of the early guests on on the show. And in the book, you state that a slight attenuation of the aging process benefits society. A 2013 uh, economic analysis showed that by slowing age-related diseases by only 20% would save $7 trillion in the USA alone over the next 50 years. And yet the FDA couldn't go ahead and uh, with a trial for metformin for aging. Could you briefly explain why? Yeah, we touched on that earlier about how we sort of have this kind of upside down and backwards approach to medicine where we just wait till disease is manifested and then we try to fix it, which is a, you know, that that is a terrible strategy. So, met, again, metformin has been shown in almost every 
multicellular creature it's been tested in to extend lifespan and increase health span. So in other words, a lot of the problems we develop as we age, like increasing insulin resistance, um, pre-diabetes, cardiovascular risk, it's able to attenuate almost all of those problems. So there, there was a trial called the TAME trial that would finally do the, you know, test metformin in healthy adults and see what we could do, see how much risk we could mitigate, how we could increase health span and lifespan of this healthy population as they age. And, you know, the government apparently had no interest in funding this, yet this is the perfect kind of place for government to step in because this is a five cent pill. It's almost free. And this could benefit the entire society. It's like the interstate highway system. No one else is really going to do this besides government. And they should because it's their citizens' well-being that they should be responsible for. Um, at the time I wrote the book, it was not funded. Now, however, I think a, a very um, philanthropic private donor has ste- stepped in to fund this trial finally. I think it's going to cost about $60 million. But yeah, the, the benefits of that, if we can attenuate things like type 2 diabetes, which now one in 10 American adults, over half of Amer- adult Americans have either prediabetes or type 2 diabetes. And the cost of that disease is incredible. It's a pernicious disease that you know, results in nerve damage, all kinds of ancillary problems and healthcare costs over time. So if we can you know, attenuate this with a five-cent pill, it, 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 that is healthcare at its best. Now, that doesn't mean we should ignore lifestyle and dietary changes. You just take this pill. Of course not. But it's, you know, it's, it's a first step. I agree. And also, there's other um, cheap treatments like water fasting or the ketogenic diet. And although highly effective, they, they're not going to find a, a place because where, where would the money come from in prescribing water fasting? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that's an interesting one. And just a, about a 48 to 72 hour water fast before chemotherapy has been shown across the board to, to dramatically diminish side effects. And there's very good, you know, cellular mechanistic reasons why this is happening. When you, when you fast, you go into this ketogenic state and what happens when you switch over to burning ketones as a fuel, your healthy cells are made much more robust. So you, you really, you produce much more glutathione and antioxidants in your healthy cells are with able to withstand chemotherapy much better. And, and on the converse, when you do this, cancer cells are made much more vulnerable because you've switched them away from a fuel that they love, blood glucose, to this different fuel, ketones, that they have trouble metabolizing. So you not only do you see a diminishment in side effects then from, from these patients undergoing chemotherapy, but you see improved outcomes. And this is all from just not eating. And it's funny, the doctor that published this data, or I'm sorry, he's a PhD, he had a really hard time getting oncologists to sign on to this. You know, he, they just are, they, they are loath to have somebody not eat. They, you know, they don't want them weakened and they have all these excuses and reasons why they think it's a terrible idea. But if, eventually he convinced enough of them to do this small trial. And the outcomes were dramatic. I mean, you saw objective measures of chemotherapy side effects, vomiting, you know, patients that didn't fast, vomited throughout the day where the patients that, that did fast, almost, it almost went to zero. So these are, you know, these are simple, extraordinarily simple. It doesn't get any cheaper than not eating. Um, 
yet there's very because of the way the system is set up incentive wise there's little incentive to study these things and hopefully one day when you have an app on your phone that can uh, point out these treatments and give you data on efficacy i think the consumer will be in a, a much more powerful position yeah just just you know knowledge is power just presenting this to patients um, so you don't have to be a patient you don't have to be sick first also you know eventually what we need uh, there will be a whole economy based around helping you take an actionable step every moment of your life should you wish to do so people have got x number of dollars per month they'll commit to health and you might as well commit it to not getting sick or feeling more well and so when people wish to spend you need something very individualized that says hey to take action and what is the best bang for buck action at the moment it's a wild west market like with consumer genomic tests uh, my uh, gut tests blood tests people are lost and searching but that will get formalized it's a bit like um, being able to search via kayak uh, for airline costs i mean to be able to rank the airlines by cost there will be an economy in what we'll call search engines in place that will guide you individually each step of your life i mean on a daily basis should you wish for whatever capacity of spending and time that you have to move your health forwards because health is a continuum it's not binary so especially with the the generation now i think the previous generation looked after their cars more and took their car for servicing and resented spending on their bodies but i think we see the the result of that now yeah that's a that's a utopian you know i i I love that idea and that that's a good analogy with the way people approached health well you know in the 50s over half of I think adults smoked um, and we've come a long way since then and, and you see this with with care oncology it's it, we we switched to a telemedicine platform because the the drugs that are prescribed these repurposed drugs are very safe and you know it's clinically very manageable you can do it remotely and when you remove these barriers for people, so now, you know, they don't have to find someone to watch their kids. They don't have to take time off work to go to and sit in a waiting room and see a doctor. You know, they can sit in their pajamas and just interface with a doctor online. And so, we're you know, we're seeing technology kind of remove some of these barriers that people have, these traditional barriers to engaging in healthcare. Yeah, we need not just a transparent, like the healthcare market is extremely opaque. You know, the cost depends on the postcode for the same procedure. And, you know, that that's ludicrous. But we need to get to not just making that transparent, i.e. a procedure, a treatment. But when people are not sick, in fact, half the population is sick without knowing it. They've got a serious nutrient deficiency or something lurking that's not good. And certainly any healthy people I've taken to the blood lab have something missing. It seems more like 100% they have something wrong. And people want to protect their health. So you, you need a market where people can invest a certain amount of time and money and get a known outcome. At the moment, it's just hit and miss and guesses. And too often, people end up at the functional medicine doctors trying to get a resolution. And I, I prefer to even avoid functional medicine doctors in the first place. Because at the moment, people are spending on their phone and apps. But I, I, pe I, people are going to be spending on anti-aging. 
on longevity and extending their life, it's going to be a quite a sizable monthly fee. People are generally paying on a subscription basis for them and their family. And I'm 100% sure it's going to be a trillion dollar market minimum within a decade. I think you're right. You know, I, I haven't thought about, you know, this sort of incorporation into healthcare, but that makes beautiful sense. I can imagine a future where, you know, you're getting genomic readouts and you can incorporate, you know, you can see, have a, have it data analyzed and see where you're deficient, what you should do, um, all of these things from your home. Yeah, I've been tracking companies doing pieces of this in different spaces for, for years now. I'm actually working on a book on this topic. Uh, I won't divert away from your book, uh, but I noticed the time here. Um, so let me just jump on to ch- chapter five and uh, to speed up here. Chapter five is nature or nurture, what really matters. My favorite quote from this chapter, hopefully I'm quoting it okay here, as uh, it came from the audible. Only a few decades ago, the vast majority of biologists would have claimed an individual's fate lay in the genes inherited from his or her mother or father. But recent studies have shown that the genes we inherit play a lesser role in our destiny. Only approximately 20% of our lifespan is hardwired into us by heritable genes alone or nature. Conversely, this means that roughly 80% of our longevity is determined by lifestyle and chance events or nurture. So... Genes are not our destiny. Could you, and this is, this is a hard one to do briefly, briefly introduce epigenetics. You know, the whole sort of geno- the genome is hardware, epigenome is software. You can mention how they're switched on and off. And if you wanted to give an example, uh, in the book you mentioned about D3, I think, and eating salmon for lunch. Just a brief introduction to the epigenetics of people who don't know anything, have an idea of the fluidity instead of the hard wiring. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that's been quite a transition in biology. After we se- sequenced the, the majority of the human genome in 2000, and Clinton announced that, um, it was really thought that the majority, and he quoted, this is a quote, that the majority of disease would be able to be solved now. Now that we finally had the, the hard copy of what our, you know, what our genome looked like. And at the time, the director of the NIH thought that, for example, there'd be about 12 genes related to type 2 diabetes. So you fast forward to today and sequence a genome is down to about, you know, a little over a thousand dollars, I think nowadays. Um, I actually did a whole genome sequence uh, recently for 400 that's crazy. euros. That is so crazy. we'll call it, call it $500. Yeah, it's amazing where that technology has gone. So, and the company gave me a 43 um, gig file to download. <laughs> right. I asked for it. Yeah. And, yeah, this data, the, the data capture is, is inc- absolutely incredible now. But what, what they've learned since then is that it's not, there's very little difference between the genomes between individuals. And there, you cannot account for disease states by genes alone, the vast majority. So when you crunch all the numbers, what you find is about 20% of our health and longevity is determined by the genes you inherit from your mom and dad. And the majority, 80%, is determined by what we call nurture. Now, nurture is a vague term. What does that mean? Nutrition, sleep, chance events, all those things. But we never really had an explanation for the, the way that those events translated into our bodies. How, how, is, how did events determine our health? 
Now we know that the way they do it is through epigenetics. So the way you think of epigenetics is you have 22,000 genes in your genome. And epigenetics are just the cellular mechanisms that turn the dials, the volume control knobs up and down on those genes. So you get, you'll have the expression or the translation of a gene turned down or turned up by epigenetics. And these, these events are determined by toxins you're exposed to, by diet, by lifestyle, by sleep, and by, by a lot of things, you know, by uh, your relationships, a lot of things we didn't appreciate before. And the, diver- the divergence between our epigenomes starts from the moment we're born. And the reason we know this is we can, the perfect experimental tool proxy for this is, is uh, um, identical twins. So they are perfect genetic clones of each other, but you can measure their epigenome divergence over time. And this actually starts in utero. One twin might get a little more placenta blood flow and get a higher degree of nutrient exchange while they're growing. And so their epigenome will start to diverge from their perfect clone right at that, you know, in utero. So this is really where science has gotten extraordinarily fascinating. Um, and we're learning so much more about how our, you know, how these events correlate to our, to, to our well-being. You, you, you mentioned social genomics. Uh, I, again, a topic I have been taking notes for, for a few years for this book I mentioned I'm working on. And you state that your social life eclipses diet and exercise and your genomics. In fact, you state, which lifestyle factors matter the most to our longevity? And I think you mentioned something about 4 million people. And you say, I don't know if it was a study, you say there are top two features, strong social connections and social integration, which is the amount of social interaction you have in a day. So do you talk to the baker? Do you talk to a fishmonger? And I find it hard to believe it trumps diet. Yeah, I did too. Lee, yeah, I found that fascinating. And I thought, you know, it was really interesting. The the first half of the book, I dedicated so much to data and how data needs to, we need to do better with data guiding doctor decision-making. And then I turned in the book to our individual health. And what does the data say that perhaps we're getting wrong? What are our own individual cognitive biases with regard to our own healthcare? And that's, that's the variables when you look epidemiological and analyze the data, what variables matter the most to our health and longevity? And the data suggests that the, these these two interactions, these social, you know, the, the social interaction you have throughout the day and, and the number of close friends and people, you know, that you rely on the most, who you ask for a loan, for example, those two things matter the most to our health and they eclipse diet, they eclipse exercise, even smoking. They're more important than, than smoking up to 15 cigarettes a day. So rather than pay for blood tests and they're checking the APOE4 gene, for example, we should pay for social events. <laughs> well, you need to do, you should do it all. And, the, you know, the, these genetic, I don't mean to, you know, these are data showing the importance of, of, di- of lifestyle factors over all, you know, a statistical analysis of people for genetics, but you certainly need to know if you have, you know, a a gene for Alzheimer's, an APOE gene, or something else that you could do something about, you know, on an individual level, that data is extremely relevant. However, as a, as a broad, just talking about the general population, yeah, that, that is true for the general population that, 
your integration into society, your engagement with people is extraordinarily important to your health. It's very blue zone-ish. It's very blue zone-ish. And that's the one commonality in blue zones is you see this dense architecture, you see kitchen parties, you see extended family. Um, and, and now we know that the, you know, this, this fuzzy interface be- between perception. So when you interact with a human being, this perception goes all the way into your epigenetics and you look at the genes involved in your immune system. This is where this seems to center. When you're socially engaged, you see a downregulation of the immune genes, uh, the, the genes responsible for inflammation, and you see an upregulation in the genes responsible for the steering response of adaptive immunity. So you, this is why lonely people have this constant sort of smoldering inflammation that that results in you know a tremendous amount of of health problems, cardiovascular disease. Yeah, people who feel that they're isolated perceive themselves anyway. It's a subjective thing. As isolated. Yeah definitely have higher glucose, higher cortisol, higher insulin. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So that just, you know, opens up a whole new door of healthcare of, of how do we combat this increasing society problem, societal problem of loneliness, which is, you know, getting worse with each subsequent gen- generation. But the doctor doesn't even know you're lonely and the doctor has eight minutes to dispense a drug. So, you know, <laughs> right. they have an incentive to give you an antidepressant. I thought that was very interesting where if you can, the first half of the book, if you can have doctors be more data driven, solve a lot of their problems with data, then they can focus more on this human part you know, spend more time with this person, this old person, are they lonely, ask them questions and engage more in the human side of medicine that the data shows is, is clearly healthcare. But that's like the Eric Topol book um, about humanizing healthcare with AI. I forget the title. It, it sort of had a similar message and it's like, no, there there's no incentives that they'll go from eight minutes to an hour with each patient. All that will happen if the systems could help, they would still have eight minutes, but they would somehow push more through there's no, there isn't more time with there's nothing to drive an incentive of more time with patient etc i i didn't understand most of that book to be honest i, I was a bit thrown off well, by there, it. well again i don't know if you know that but, yeah i do um, i do and and there there is uh the, the new book the price we pay by marty mckay um he gives a wonderful example again because our healthcare system is so ununiform compared to like the nhs or canada's where it's a national healthcare system we get these strange pockets of brilliance. And one example he gave was uh, this payment system where you give a clinic of primary practitioners a bolus of money per patient, right? So if they have a thousand patients, you give them X amount of dollars for the year. Now the incentive for all these practitioners is to do everything to maintain their health, do preventative medicine as cheaply and as good as possible. What you see in these clinics when they do that, they spend much more time with the patient, you know, the sort of human reaction and go through stuff much more thoroughly because their incentives are now aligned to, to do that. I want to home in on a doctor here and I'll, I see I'm, I've overshot the agreed time by a couple of minutes. So let me try and finish off on, on one more question. I'll just share a couple areas where my mind has been since 2015 and uh, see what thoughts you have. The event I did to to validate things back in, in the hyper-well-being concept, etc., back in 2015, the splash page back then stated, 
It's funny looking back in time now. Uh, connected technologies are knowing us ever more intimately. Our physical and sexual activities, motion and gestures, sleep and reproductive cycles, and nutritional intake plus increasing physiological measurements. More recently, our moods, emotions, thoughts, intentions, and speech. And, you know, it was because I realized that an intimacy barrier had been crossed between uh, man and machine. And we should use it for something utopian. And then at the same time, I had built up an appreciation of epigenetics. And so in 2016, I'd, uh, I made this statement, which I'll read. Our most pressing health issues today are caused by the lifelong daily interaction among our genetics, environment, and lifestyle choices, a dynamic interplay of our biology, environment, psychology, and our behavior interwoven. Now, when you, you, you take those two things together, machines knowing us and our health being self-determined, not deterministic, as I've been brought to believe, it's a perfect marriage because it's about our social networks, it's about our affective states, it's about our physiology moment to moment, our stress levels. Now, doctors are not watching what we eat hour to hour, recording how we feel moment to moment, or recording our stress levels during the day, or our glucose response to lunch. It would be absurd. And so clearly, the future is machine and sensor and AI driven, a minimum for prediction, prevention, anti-aging optimization. Surely the machine is center stage there. I mean, Brad Perkins said it will require, uh, he, he argues other way and says, hey, uh, medicine will become a data science supported by clinicians rather than clinicians supported by data. Do you have any thoughts there? Wow. Yeah, that's a lot of content. But yeah, I mean, my, my thoughts toward the end there was that's really what Intermount, you know, these places that are doing this so well, that's what they're doing is they're, the, the data is driving the clinicians. Not, not the other way. I'm going to need to look more into Intermountain. Yeah, yeah, that, that's that's a brilliant example of this. And, you know, AI is already doing things better. For example, radiology. I mean, med students are fleeing radiology at the moment because Google's got a program, and I think others now, that will use, they, they will use artificial intelligence to diagnose radiology films, images. And they're extraordinarily good at it. So they just show, you know, they show this program, thousands of these scans, and it learns um, how to diagnose. And it, it does it, you know, it's showing it as much better than a human being. Yeah, consumer diagnostics will also um, grow significantly. Yeah. I mean, that's an understatement. But it'll become so powerful in the diagnostic side when you do have a condition at the consumer end. I don't think people are seeing the decentralization of healthcare. People keep speaking of it in a, as if this system will stay, but there's a new system in play. I think it's like Tesla versus GM yeah. uh, in healthcare. I don't think people are seeing this new sensor-driven, driven by the semiconductor industry, computer science moving to healthcare instead of healthcare becoming digitized. There is something new emerging. As I say, I think it's a multi-trillion market. Yeah, and I think this is, this is affecting every industry. You know, this new incursion of, of data and analytics and AI. No industry is going to escape the effect of this. Um, how far it goes, I, I don't know. You know, I, I don't know where you get too much information for a consumer to even rationally to, you know, to use or, 
you get this kind of weird thing where you're not even living your life. You're just, there's too much, you know, and uh, I don't know where that balance is going to be struck, I guess. Um, but, you know, we're grappling with that in society everywhere about how do we use all this data and what's, what is too much, what is too much incursion into our lives. So it's an interesting argument and it's, it's, it's really, you know, I got some far, so we probably can't do this now, but really kind of philosophical thoughts on, on this process, <laughs> but it's undoubtedly the trend is there. You're absolutely right. And it's only, yeah, it's, and have, you, have you read any of Yuval Harari's books? You know, he speaks of dataism. No, I haven't read those. Uh-uh. I think I'm going to invite him on, but I see the time here. And so I just want to give you uh, the opportunity. If you feel I didn't cover anything or if there's anything that you would like to say, then please do. No, I think we did. That was a broad sweep of everything in the book. And I think we covered a lot of ground there. And I think the last message I'll give people is, you know, one of optimism, all these things that we're talking about, these changes are, are good. And there'll be a time and, and this stuff is moving extraordinarily rapidly. These, these life anti-aging technologies and things like that, you know, are the next generation, hopefully even our generation is, could, could realistically see a dramatic extension in, in, in our lifespans. So these problems, the technology, we, we tend to evaluate things in a very short time frame as humans, but this trend is moving so rapidly. You know, when you look out in decades ahead, I think there will be substantial change in the right direction. I think the, I think this is the era, the, the next decade is about what I have termed human as a platform. And I, I witnessed the PC when it came. I witnessed the smartphone when it came. I was deeply interested in both revolutions. But I think this is the most exciting revolution as innovation heads towards a body. You know, when you eat an apple, an apple is a set number of lines of code that is executed on the body platform. And we're moving into this, not just systems biology, but human in the world systems. I think we're, we're I'm, I'm incredibly excited about the future as you combine epigenetics, uh, decentralization of healthcare, uh, anti-aging. It's a, it's a brilliant time to be living. And it's not just you know, stopping yourself getting disease. It's also changing your effective states, possibly with, say, nootropics. We end up with dashboards for our minds, emotions, uh, uh, and bodies. Yeah, I, I feel the same way, Lee. I'm very excited, optimistic, and, and I think the best is certainly yet to come. I must thank you for the book because I greatly admire someone who can actually get a book out the door. Uh, whereas I've been spending four years collecting information and every day I keep adding to it instead of truncating it down. I keep synthesizing, but then expanding. And I'd like to talk to you sometime about how you're, you're able to uh, do the opposite and actually get something out the door. So thank you very much for the book. It's out tomorrow on, on Kindle. People will hear this after the book is out. So I'm sure you'll uh, greatly interest people in uh, checking the book out. Thank you, Lee. That was fun. Thank you very much, Travis. Greatly appreciate it for your yeah, time. Take care. For more information, please see hyperwellbeing.com or follow Twitter at hyperwellbeing. <laughs>